This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. What is up, Elevate? How are y'all doing? What is the best night of the week? Man, I am really excited about tonight because we're tackling something that is, first of all, going to make us a little bit uncomfortable. And it's also going to deal with the questions that may come against you, especially as you, as you have non-Christian friends. And we're kind of jumping into what's called apologetics. It doesn't mean that we're apologizing for anything. It means that we are defending our faith. And tonight we're going to talk about our closing night of the series. We're going to talk about how do we defend that the Bible is the accurate, valid word of God that the apostles wrote and has been given to us 2,000 years later. Are you guys ready to kick this off? Let me grab my notes so that I'm not totally lost. Heavenly Father, open your word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, for those of you who have your Bible tonight, there's a few of you that might. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, and we're going to start at the second half of the verse 15. It's at the end. 1 Peter is way in the back. Now, the Bible has three purposes. Does anyone remember what they are? It has three purposes. To reveal himself to us, yes. To glorify himself, yes. And what's the third one? Go ahead. To equip his people, well done, well done. The three purposes of the word of God. Glorifies God, reveals him to us, and equips his people. 1 Peter 3, we're going to start in the second half of verse 15 through verse 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Be prepared to give a defense. And tonight we're just going to give you a little bit of a slice of that defense. And recognize that as we express why we believe what we believe, it's done with gentleness. It's done with respect. Like, we're called to be waiters of the word of God. Now, if a waiter came to your table, they can have the most delicious, yummy, sizzling steak ever, and if they hit you in the face with it as hard as they could, you would not enjoy your meal. But God has called us to be waiters of the word of God where we treat people with respect and with gentleness and we put a little garnish on it and we show them the meat of how valuable this is in our lives. That was totally off the cuff. I didn't plan that. 
Can we trust the Bible? Can we believe the apostles' testimonies and writings were accurately passed down across not 1,000, but 2,000 years to us? Now, the critics have two arguments against us. Those atheist people out there, people of other religions, they have two arguments that they're going to use against you when it comes to the Word of God. And it, it may make you a little uncomfortable because they're going to come across as really valid arguments. So prepare to pucker your butt cheeks a little bit. This may be a bit uncomfortable. The first thing that they'll say is that Christians don't have any of the original manuscripts that were written by the apostles. All you have are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. That's all you've got. So how can you prove that what you have in your hand are the words of Jesus written by the apostles? If all you have is copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. The second thing that they're going to say is that whenever you look at those copies, when you look at those manuscripts, that there are thousands of errors and disagreements between those copies. In fact, two of people's favorite passages may not even belong to be in there. And how are we going to know what's true? If all these different copies are all different if they have all these errors and discrepancies, how do we deal with that? Go for it, Christian. Defend your faith. Defend the Bible that you stand by. I'm actually going to read. This is one of the leading critics against Christianity right now. His name is Bart Ehrman. And he wrote the book, Misquoting Jesus. And it's become a bestseller. And he has built his reputation on those two arguments against Christians. And he goes around and he, he tours and he speaks in places all so that he can disassemble the Christian faith. And this is one of the things he said. Pay attention. Not only do we not have the originals of the biblical manuscripts, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We have only error-written copies. And the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them in thousands of ways. Mistakes multiply and get repeated. Sometimes they get corrected. Sometimes they get compounded. And so it goes for centuries in some places, we simply cannot be sure that we have reconstructed the text accurately. Woo! Anyone have some, some puckered butt cheeks right now? Buns of steel. How are we as Christians going to respond to this? I want to give you just a little bit of relief before we jump forward. Imagine, I forgot it in my office, of course. Imagine I had a playing card, you know, like Ace of Spades or something. And what Bart Ehrman is doing is he's showing you this, this side. Doesn't it look sturdy? Look how big and how wide my argument is. But what he's not doing is he's not turning it sideways to show how thin and how shallow it is. And tonight we're going to expose that a little bit. Do I have your attention? Are you ready? Let's tackle the first criticism. Christians don't have the original manuscripts. All they have are copies. If you're a nerd like me, you love watching the commentators and behind the scenes of old movies. I love it. And when Jackie and I bought The Wizard of Oz, the remastered version of Wizard of Oz, I sat there and watched the two-hour commentary behind the scenes after I watched the movie into the night until about 1 a.m. And I'll tell you one of the things I learned that was really cool so that you don't have to watch the two-hour commentary. When they went back to remaster it, they went back to the original film. But this was their first venture, one of the first ventures into color film. They didn't use a single strip of film. In fact, 
they shot it with three different films at the same time. A green, a red, and a blue. Simultaneously. And then afterwards, they would layer these three on top of each other for the sake of having color film. Now, when they went to the shelves to pull the original copies, the original film, they found that it had been warped over age. There were flaws. There were places in the film that were rotted or stained or corroded over time. And you know what they could do? Because they didn't just have one copy of the original. They had three. And so as they're looking at the film, if there was a a big flaw in the red frame, they could go to the comparable blue frame and extract the perfect image. Or if two of them were corrupted, they could go to the third. And so having copies, in fact, help have the most accurate possible version of Wizard of Oz. That is similar to what we're going to look at and how beautiful this is. Scholars and historians will see validity and they will see authority and authenticity in the number of copies of an ancient document. And so they look for the number of copies and they look for what's called temporal distance, which is a fancy way of saying, okay, the author wrote here, what is our earliest surviving copy of that author's work? How close can we get to the original? Is it 50 years? Is it 100 years? Is it 1,000 years? What's our earliest copy of that author's work? We're going to look at those things and how it relates to the Bible. Why do we need so many copies? Why does that make a difference? There's three reasons. One, when we're dealing with errors and variance, that's differences, just like the Wizard of Oz, the more copies you have, the easier it is to reproduce the original with higher certainty. Just like the Wizard of Oz. They had three. So the more copies you have, the easier it is to get back to the original, to see the closest to the perfect form. The more times that it's copied, the more the original content is preserved. It's kind of like an ancient backup drives. The more it's copied, the harder it is to destroy. Say like a Christian persecution. It's harder to find all the copies to destroy them. So the more copies you have, the better preserved it is. The more copies you have, the less likely it is that anyone can come in and modify it for their own agenda. Maybe there's some Christian cult and they want to change how something is said. Well, they can't get away with it because there's a whole bunch of other copies that say that they're wrong. And so having copies shows that it can't be modified or changed drastically. A good example is Jehovah's Witness. They retranslated their Bible and they took John 1.1 that says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. And they write, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was a God. You see the difference there? Now, a historian or a scholar, Christian or atheist, can immediately spot that that is incorrect because we have millions of Bibles that say an accurate translation. And they can go back to the original manuscripts and see what the accurate translation is. Let me give you some examples. This is so cool. The number of copies makes a big difference. Do you all understand why? I've given you three reasons why the more copies, the better. Tacitus, this old Greek guy in his historian self, he wrote the histories and he wrote the annals, and we have two surviving copies of his. Plato, you know that guy, right? You've heard that guy before? Plato? We have seven copies of his original works. Seven. Better than two. Julius Caesar, 
In his Gallic Wars, we have ten surviving copies. Aristotle, his book Poetics, we have 49 surviving copies. Homer with the Iliad, y'all know that? Homer, Iliad, Odyssey. We have 643 surviving copies of Homer's work. That's awesome. What about the New Testament? Is there validity? Is there authenticity? Can we show, can we have these three things that we talked about proven? The New Testament in the original Greek has 5,700 early copies. It blows every competitor out of the water. No classical document comes anywhere close to how well documented that book is. Then, there are 25,000 copies into other languages in those early years. Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, Gothic, Arabic. And if all of those, if the 5,700 copies in Greek, the original language, and the 25,000 copies were destroyed, we have the entire New Testament that could be put back together through the quotes of the early church fathers in their ancient writings. Two-thirds of the New Testament can be reconstructed by origin alone. The Bible is exceptionally well-documented. In, in short, in comparing to the other classical writers that I mentioned, the Bible is documented 1,000 times better than the average classical author, including Homer, Plato, Aristotle, and Caesar. If I said it was twice as well-documented, you'd be like, whoa. 1,000 times better documented. For an honest historian or scholar to doubt that Jesus at least lived and died on a Roman cross would be foolish. They would have to doubt every other person of classical history. If they can honestly say Jesus didn't live, at least, they have to say Caesar didn't live, Plato didn't live, Tacitus didn't live, Aristotle didn't live either. And honestly, even in secular history, even with atheists, they'll still laugh at you if you say that there was at least no historical Jesus because it's so well documented. What about temporal distance? The distance between when the author wrote and our earliest surviving copy of that author's work. Let's take a look at those same histories, those same classical authors. Tacitus, he wrote between 56 and 120 A.D. Our earliest surviving copy is, 800, is in the 800s A.D. And his second one is in the 1000s A.D. That is a 700 and a 900 year gap between when he wrote and our earliest manuscript of that writing. Plato, he wrote around 400 B.C. Our earliest copy is A.D. 800s, which is a 1,200-year gap. Julius Caesar, the Gallic Wars, he wrote between 58 and 52 B.C. We only have 10 copies, and there's a 900-year gap. Aristotle, in his Poetics, he wrote in 335 B.C. We have 49 surviving copies. Our earliest document of his comes from the 1100s. That is a 1,400-year gap. Homer's Iliad, he wrote in 700 B.C., Our earliest manuscript of his comes from the 800s A.D., a 1,500-year gap. The New Testament, 
and it's 5,700 copies in Greek. We have, within the first 100 years, 15, 10 to 15 early documents. Within the first 100 years, nobody comes close. Within the first 200 years, we have 48 surviving documents. Within the first 300, we have 99. And one of those 99 is called Codex Sinaiticus, and it is a complete New Testament and Old Testament. Within the first 300 years, nobody comes close to the documentation of the Bible. In fact, scholars have learned by looking at old libraries that people would reuse and use the same book for up to 100 to 150 years before they would copy it and get rid of the old one. A hundred to 150 years they would keep it. Another Bible was called the Codex Vaticanus, and they used it for 600 years before they re-inked it. So if you think about that, that people were using it for 100 to 600 years, but our earliest copies are coming from within the first 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, the reality is we actually probably do have the very first copies of those biblical manuscripts. The earliest copies that they have found were dug up in a garbage heap in Egypt. They found 30 papyrus leaves containing Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Acts, dating from the early 200s. They found 86 papyrus leaves containing Romans, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, dated to around 200 A.D., They even found a fragment of John from the early 100s, meaning it was within a decade or two of his death. It's almost a guarantee that the author's original manuscripts were kept to make copies over decades, even centuries, before they were lost or destroyed. And this invalidates the critics' claim that what we have are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. It's more than likely that some of what we have in our museums are the original copies. If anyone is skeptical about the authenticity of the New Testament, their skepticism has to be multiplied many, many times over towards every other historical person from that era. Nothing else comes close. The New Testament has an unparalleled, this is a quote from a commentary, has an unparalleled abundance of materials to work with. In terms of both quantity and age of manuscripts, nothing else comes close. So the second criticism... Transmission. How can we know with all the errors between the manuscripts? Because no two manuscripts are exactly a mirror image of each other, which is a misnomer because a mirror image is exactly reversed, but you know what I mean. If all the manuscripts have errors, perhaps thousands of errors, how can we know what the originals actually said? To quote Bart Ehrman again, his Misquoting Jesus book, He says, some say there are 200,000 variants known. Some say 300,000. Some say 400,000 or more. Do we actually have, I've got to ask you this question. Do you think that we actually have 400,000 different documents about what Jesus did? Now this is meant to sound intimidating. This is that playing card. Let me show you how big this is. And what we're going to do is we're going to turn it on its edge like this. We're going to see some truth. First of all, let's start with what a variant is. A variant is any slight difference between one text and another. In fact, if 11 documents say, John sat down, and one document says, John sat, 
that is considered 11 variants. So first of all, let's understand what they mean by a variant. Now, 400,000 is a huge number. It's kind of intimidating. It puckers my butt cheeks. But the number we're talking about is not the 5,700 manuscripts in Greek. When they talk about 400,000, like really, what, can you imagine the difference between the number one and the number 200,000? Like that's a big stretch. So for them to say 200,000 to 400,000, we're already recognizing that they're in a guessing world. Are you following me with that? Now, let's go for all the extreme. Let's say there are 400,000 discrepancies and errors between all of these manuscripts. They're not talking about the 5,700 Greek manuscripts. They're actually talking about the 5,700 Greek manuscripts plus the 20,000 manuscripts in other languages. Now, if you do the math on that, it's pretty simple. If you look at the, 20, the 5,700 plus the 25,000 others, and you divide that into 400,000, you get about 13 variants per manuscript. Well, that doesn't sound that bad anymore, right? Thir- in, in a whole manuscript, 13 variants. Now, critics withhold this from their readers because of the sheer insignificance of what these variants are. All they want to do is hit you with this big number, but they don't actually tell you what they mean by a variant. Because of this, we have these amazing people called textual critics. And what they do is they look at all these manuscripts and they try to discern what is the original actually saying. And to quote your Bible commentary, it says this, Textual criticism is the science and art that seeks to determine the most reliable original wording of a text. Its goal is to work back as closely as possible to the final form of the text as it was canonized and maintained by the scribes. And I, as we're talking about this, this is not, there are a thousand puzzle pieces and they all come from a thousand different puzzles. This is, there are a thousand and ten puzzle pieces and these textual critics and these translators are trying to recognize what the full picture is so that we can disregard those ten. Are you following me in that example? Like, nod your head if you're like with me. Okay, let's take a look at what some of these variants actually are. The largest category of variants, the bulk of all of them, is simply misspelled words, a confusion of similar letters, an omission of a letter or a word, a doubling of a letter or a word, reversing a letter or a word, maybe two words joined together that shouldn't be, two words separated that shouldn't be, and they're simply accidents. They're just spelling errors. They're just typos. And they're coming from a scribe who spent all day writing with his clumsy quill who doesn't have glasses and he's working by candlelight. And it's just ridiculous, silly errors that when a translator looks at, is like, obviously. These are the kind of variants that people are slamming you with the number 400,000 with. And that is most of them. I'll give you an example. In one copy, in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, the phrase is, we were gentle among you. Now, a single Greek letter changes the word gentle, and so they found a manuscript that says, and we were horses among you. And the translator's like, obviously. That's the kind of errors that we're talking about. That's the first one, spelling and nonsense. The second category are called minor changes. These include synonyms and alterations. None of them affect how the sentence is translated. For example, 
some of the copies in the old Greek would actually use a definite article in front of names. They would say, the John. And the John came and said hi. And they consider that a variant when they find manuscripts that don't have the the there. The the there. The third category is called meaningful changes which aren't viable. This means that they may change the meaning of things, but it doesn't change the meaning of the sentence in any way. An example is 1 Thessalonians 2.9. And one manuscript says the gospel of God, and another manuscript says the gospel of Christ. Doesn't make a huge difference. These are the things that they're throwing at us saying, oh, your Bible is inaccurate. You can't, you can't know what they meant to write. There's so many inaccuracies and variants. But they're not ones that stress us out at all. And the last category is called meaningful and viable changes. This is less than 1% of variances that actually change the meaning of the sentence in some way. And I'll give you an example. Romans 5.1 says, we have peace. And another manuscript says, let us have peace. So is Paul saying, recognizing that we already have peace? Or is he encouraging them to have peace? It doesn't change our theology in any way. It doesn't change whether Jesus died on a cross, resurrected, whether we're saved by confessing that he is Christ. No. Another example is Matthew 27, 24. Pilate is talking to Jesus and he's about Jesus and he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. Another manuscript says, I am innocent of this righteous blood. That's what they're talking about when they say meaningful and viable changes. Absolutely none of these variances contradict Scripture or change orthodox Christian beliefs in any way, not one. But I will hit you with two things that might make you go flinch a little bit. You ready to flinch a little bit? You're like, oh, I'm listening. All right, are you ready? There are two exceptions to this rule. And there are two exceptions that people are going to try to hit you with. And we're going to just disarm them right now. The first one is the end of Mark. It's Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. And if you look in your Bible, you'll actually see that it's in brackets. And it's because the earliest manuscripts of Mark don't have this commissioning of Jesus at the very end. At some point, they believe it was put in later. And it's because the end of Mark ends really abruptly, and they want to echo the Matthew Great Commission. But if you look at that, it doesn't add or take away a single thing about what we believe. We have the same thing in Matthew, so it doesn't wreck us if it's there or not there. And the other one, oh man, I'm sorry, this one's going to hurt. The other one that was not in the original manuscripts is in John. I want to make sure I'm telling you the right place. It's John 7. And it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus writes in the sand, tells them, he who, throws the, he who has no sin, throw the first stone. That story is not in the original manuscripts. I know, I love that story. <sighs> really? But church history tells us that Papias was probably the one that added it in there. And Papias was John's disciple. So he's telling John's story anyway, which John witnessed. So again, it doesn't wreck us. Like people need to calm down. They're showing us this edge, this side of the card of the argument. But let's look at reality. Let's turn this thing sideways and realize that they have nothing to stand on. 
In fact, all the things that they're using against us actually support the validity and authenticity of the Word of God. Because of those thousands of manuscripts all over the Roman Empire, it allows translators to reconstruct with a massive amount of confidence what the Bible authors actually said. And those translators haven't tried to hide any of it. As you look in your Bible, if you're reading, you see a tiny little number next to the word. That is a footnote at the bottom. You can look down and it'll say, other manuscripts say this. And go check it out. See if it rocks your world or not. When thousands upon thousands of manuscripts are compared, they agree, on, they agree more than 99% of the time. And none of the differences relate to our doctrine of the deity of Christ, of his preaching, of his death, his resurrection, of justification by faith or the Trinity in any way. We can speak with confidence that the writings of the apostles have been passed down to us with incredible accuracy. We can trust that the testimonies of the writers were true. So much so that it blows out of the water every other ancient document. Let's go back to that verse that we read. 1 Peter 3, 15, 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. First of all, all this information that I just hit you with is online, iloveelevate.com. Click on the podcast tab and you can download the PDF of all of this information and more because I skipped a whole bunch of really cool stuff. So if you're curious, if you want this, to take it home to print it out, tuck it in your Bible, iloveelevate.com, podcast tab, download it right there. But when we look at this verse, it opens with, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. I want to take you to another verse, 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to love God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Our hearts and lives need to stand on truth. As we pursue God and his word, we're not going after intellectual accomplishment. There's no diploma after you finish the book of Revelation. The Bible has nothing to do with making you more intelligent and has everything to do with glorifying God so that you can know him, so that he can equip you, so that you can go into the world and love people the way Jesus loved people, so that you can give grace and patience the way Jesus gave grace and patience. So that you can walk with the confidence that God is your father the way Jesus walked. With confidence that God was his father. We walk without fear. We walk enduring suffering. We walk knowing our God. May we be moved through his word to glorify God. To pursue a, a relationship with him and to allow him to equip us. My prayer for you is that the Lord will direct your hearts 
to love God through his word. And then the steadfastness of Christ, the lifestyle, the endurance of Christ is what you are equipped with by his word. I want to close with this beautiful poem. It's about an anvil. It's the big chunk of iron that a blacksmith hammers against all day to warp and form metal. It's by John Clifford, and it's in Old English, so bear with me, lean in, try to pay attention. Last eve, I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chimes. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn out with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know? And so I thought the anvil of God's word for ages skeptics' blows have beat upon. Yet, though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed and the hammer's gone. For 2,000 years, people have tried to defeat the Word of God. And for 2,000 years, the Word of God has changed lives. It's changed cultures. It's pressed into people who were awful and erratically made them altruistic and loving. The Word of God has changed and stayed enduring throughout the centuries, unmoved. No other event, no other leader, no other war, no other philosophy has so affected the world. Something happened that the Bible talks about that was this atomic cause, and the effects are still rippling today, and there's no end in sight. Because this historical Jesus didn't die. This historical Jesus is alive. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and his Holy Spirit is dwelling in his people and he is expanding and pushing his kingdom forward. That is what the word of God is about. Recap. When considering the ancient text, scholars assess validity by the number of early copies and the amount of time between its being written and the earliest copy known. The New Testament has more copies than any other classical Greek or Latin writing by far. The New Testament's earliest copies are drastically closer to the original than any others. Despite an unknown number of variants, textual critics can ascertain the original text with great confidence. So i got two challenges for you. Number one, start checking out the footnotes. When you're reading, you see the little number? Check the bottom for that number. Get to know some of that stuff. And the second one is this. I challenge you to start having a Bible study with a friend. Grab an accountability partner. Pick a, pick a night. Hey, I'm going to call you on Thursday. We will have both read this. Let's talk about it. Let's run through Dom's things of, of how do we study the Bible. So that's my challenge. Grab a friend. Have a Bible study. Start a Bible study. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are gracious. You are kind. And one of your greatest gifts to us is your written word that is spattered by the blood of martyrs who gave it all so that we could have it in our hands. I thank you, Lord, for this series. What a beautiful way to close it. I thank you, Lord, for for everyone who has gone before us. And I thank you, Lord, for all those who are going to go after us. I thank you for fertile soil in this room and that your word will be seeds planted into the lives of every one of these students. 
We love you, Lord, and we give our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.